Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. There are portions of Scripture throughout the ages that have bewildered Christians in all generations. Portions of Scripture that we read and we do recognize that this is the Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God from beginning to end. 66 books, in fact, in our Bibles. And from beginning to end, it is God-breathed. It is from the heart of God to the heart of His people. It is God's Word. It's infallible. It's true. We know that. We recognize this truth. However, there are times that we read portions in God's Word and we're left, even as Christians, walking away thinking... I'm not sure how to understand this. We may scratch our heads and ask the question, why? Why has this taken place? How can a man like Jephthah, for example, do what he does and say what he says and oath what he oaths? Our minds instantly go in a portion like this when we read sections of Scripture like Joshua, like Judges chapter 11. Our minds instantly think about the foolishness of the oath that was given by a judge of Israel. A certain part of us would would love to label him as a godless man and leave it there. But then there's that Hebrews 11 passage again that speaks to him and his faith. You guessed it. Jephthah made it into the hall of faith. As I said in my prayer, all scripture is God-breathed. It's true. It's from the heart of God. And this is what I want to say, beloved brothers and sisters, and this is it. That there are times that we come to the word of God and we read it and we meditate upon it. And we receive it as the word of God. And we may still, even afterwards, have questions that we don't quite have answers to. It's still the word of God. It is still true. And here's the thing. It is still profitable for your soul and mine. Because all scripture is God-breathed. And it's all profitable to your souls and mine, to the people of God from all generations. And now we approach this time in faith, trusting that the Lord will bless our time together. It's no different here in Judges chapter 11. This is his word, even if we don't quite fully understand what Jephthah was thinking. So let's talk about the man. What about the man? Well, we're told some information from the onset of chapter 11, are we not? That Jephthah was a Gileadite. It's a hard word to pronounce. And he was a son of a prostitute. The, the region of, of Gilead is, in the, is on the Transjordanian side of, of Israel, and it really belongs to the, the tribe, the upper, the northern tribe of, of Manasseh, or the half tribe of Manasseh. And that that important piece of information tells us that he is the son of a prostitute. His father was from from Gilead, and he had an illicit relationship with a prostitute. And the fruit of that relationship is what you see before you. This man by the name of Jephthah, or 
Jephthah. You can pronounce it. Actually, in the original, it's neither of those. It's Yiftah, which means to open. But I'll probably call him Jephthah because that's the way it sits in my mind. And I don't want to confuse my mind too easily. This man, Jephthah, was eventually driven away from his home. His brothers kicked him out because he was an illegitimate son. He had no portion, as far as they're concerned, with their father's inheritance. And they wanted him gone. So they kicked him out of the home. Jephthah had become an outcast driven out to cut his own path in life. And he does. And he does. And when he does, he goes and meets and mixes up with the wrong people. We're told here that he mixes with the wrong crowd. In fact, worthless men are attracted to Jephthah. That that is, they've come and joined around him and he's begun to lead these worthless men. And just in case you don't get it, the worthless men is not speaking to the, the amount of money they had in their wallets or their net worth. Worthless meaning their moral corruptedness. Bad company, or bad morals. Bad company corrupts good character. Worthless men. And we can't exactly say what Jephthah was doing with that crowd for those years that he stayed away from Gilead. We, we don't know this because we, we're not told, right? We're not told. But one thing we are told is this, that Jephthah had created or at least amassed for himself a fairly good Reputation insofar as his strength is concerned. Did you get it? The first time you're introduced to this, Jephthah, is, is in the first few verses, and we're told immediately that he was a mighty warrior. He's a strong man, so we don't know what he, he was doing with these men, but he was doing something to actually build a reputation for others or the outsiders to know that he's a force to be reckoned with. This Jephthah was a man who could handle his own. A mighty warrior, the real deal, a, a, man of, a man of valor. And despite the rocky history he had with his people there in, in Gilead, a mighty warrior is exactly what they needed right now. At least according to the elders of Gilead. You see, the Ammonite army was now camped in Gilead, in the regions and within the borders of Israel. They were camped there, ready to launch a full-scale attack at the people of Israel. I said this, it's the Transjordanian tribe. So remember, it's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You remember there was, there was Gad, the Reuben, Gad, and, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It's in that region there, on the other side of the Jordan River. And, and the Ammonites were, were there, and they were ready to, to launch an attack on the people of Israel. And the elders of Israel knew that they were in desperate times. So desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And so they call out to Jephthah to come. They're willing to eat humble pie and bring this Jephthah, this man who's amassed a very wonderful reputation of strength, being a mighty warrior. We need you to come and we need you to be our warrior. But it's not just that they want him to be a leader in the battle. They want him to also lead them full stop. You saw that in the text. That, that they want him not only to lead them in the battle against the Ammonites, but they also want him to be the head of all the inhabitants of Gilead. That's a huge thing for this son of a prostitute who's been exiled from his people and now to come back with such an honor. At first he questions it, but then why not? He agrees. He agrees to, to go from being an outcast to practically becoming their king. But in the last verse of chapter 10, 
The question was asked by the leaders of Israel. You remember that question? Put your eyes down there in the last verse of chapter 10. From verse 17. Actually, I'd intended to start there. Let me read it to you from verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to the arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to the other, Here this, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Who is the man who will lead us into battle? You can imagine the, the scene. You have the Ammonite army, the formidable army. Remember, this is done that, it's, that, that has oppressed the people of Israel for 18 years. They're pretty powerful. And they're all camped there within the borders of Israel. They're in Gilead and they're afraid. And they're talking to one another. Even the elders are saying, who is this man who will come and save us from this formidable army? Who will save us? Does that bring some memories to your mind of what will take place in the future? You can almost imagine in another context where, where is Israel again and another army encamped before Israel. But it wasn't the Ammonites, it was the Philistines. And before them was this giant of a man called Goliath. You remember? And in fear, he had dread over the people of Israel. And they were waiting day upon day for a man to come and rescue them day upon day and the soldiers were in dread and they would withdraw every time Goliath came before them and they'll talk amongst each other and say do you not know of the riches the king will give to the one who defeats this Goliath and not only the riches but he'll give him his daughter in marriage such honor we need a man to come and save us and this is the same thing that we see here from the people of Israel as they look upon the Ammonite camp, encamped in front of them, this formidable, strong army that has oppressed them for 18 years. And what comes out of their mouth is, which, or who is this man that will come and save us? They're looking for a man and they have found a man because they find Jephthah. But beloved brothers and sisters, let me submit this to you. They ought to not have been looking for a man, but they ought to have looking to God, to Yahweh alone. Because the true rescuer, the deliverer of his people is God himself, not a single man. But they abandoned God. They forsook God of Israel. They turned their hearts to all sorts of idols. It seems like there's a form of repentance in the last portion of that last chapter. But here they are saying we're looking for a man to deliver us. Now as far as strength is concerned, that's like bodily strength and, and acumen as far as the, the, the military prowess. Jephthah had it. He was of the best. Often, when we think about stereotypes... We think about the masculine, the strong, the warrior types. Often what comes to our mind, unfortunately, is all brawn and no brain. But let me assure you, that's not Jephthah. He's a pretty smart guy. Actually, he was an incredibly intelligent human being. Turns out he was quite a diplomat. In fact, that's, that's one of the reasons... That makes this foolish vow so baffling. Because as we work our way through this text, we're going to see this a level of intelligence in this man, which is incredible. And yet he opens his mouth to say such, such foolish things. 
Now, don't let the outcome fool you. I'm talking about the outcome to his, his, um, his words and his, his attempt to diplomacy. Don't let that fool you. He was a man with, with brain. And it's about now that you're thinking that this Jephthah, who has been enlisted by the leaders of Gilead to be their leader, to be their newly appointed general, you, you would think it's about now that he would rally up his men, right? Rally up the troops and, and give them a bit of a pep talk and, and give them a battle cry to, to shout out to God and to country, possibly. And let's take it to the Ammonites. But he doesn't do that. Instead, with a great level of precision and and wisdom it takes the diplomatic approach why engage in a war when there's a possibility to avoid it altogether is what he's thinking so Jephthah appeals to the enemy and asks why are you offended at us let, let's begin with asking the question why are you even camped here? Let, let us know your reasoning. It seems like you're very angry at us and you, and you want to take it to us. Please explain. Tell us why. And then he gets his answer in verse 13. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messages of Jephthah. And he answers this way. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land. From the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, and now therefore restore it peacefully. Oh, that's what it's about. You want our land. So Jephthah now is, is, is equipped with knowledge. Now he understands that the Ammonites are camped there because they want to come and fight a battle so that they can take this land back, which they think is rightly theirs. Hmm. Good thing you haven't made the, the mistake of, of putting the battle to us or, or to, to engage in the first blow is probably what Jephthah is thinking because you've got it all wrong. That's his reply. You've got it all wrong. King of the Ammonites, you've got it all wrong. Don't be rash. This was never your land. That's what he's saying in the text. I told you Jephthah had brains. Not only did he have brains, but he was well-versed in the scriptures. He was well-versed in the five books of Moses. He was well-versed in his history. He knows the history of his people, which is pretty impressive considering a guy, or the guy was exiled from among his own people. His response from verse 15 through to 24 is pretty clear, I think. And Jephthah gives the opposing king a bit of history lesson. And I love it because he takes that history lesson from an infallible source. The word of God. Mr. Ammonite king, you've got it all wrong, is what he's saying. You, you've confused your people, the Ammonites, with another people that may sound like the Ammonites, but are in fact the Amorites. <laughs> Israel never touched the Ammonites. Israel, in fact, didn't take the battle to the Ammonites, and they didn't take the battle to the Moabites. In fact, we took the battle to the Amorites is what he's saying. Now to help us with a bit of context, because there's a, a lot of ites in the Old Testament that we've gone throughout the Old Testament thus far, and I wouldn't blame you if you don't remember them all. There's a lot there. But let me give you just a little bit of context so that this becomes a little less confusing. 
The reason why Jephthah recalls the Moabites as well as the Ammonites in his speech back to the Ammonites, when he's addressing the Ammonites in particular, is because the Moabites and the Ammonites are brothers. They're brothers. Now you might remember Lot. You remember the, the incestuous action of his daughters when he was drunk? And, and the result of that action was that both his daughters became pregnant and they became the beginning of the posterity of a particular people. The older daughter, she gave birth to the people of Moab and the younger daughter, she gave birth to the people of the Ammonites, brothers. And, and Jephthah knows his history. And he knows that, that in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Lord God was very specific in saying to the people of Israel, which is recounted back in the book of Numbers, that when you walk through the land, as you begin the conquest on the Transjordanian side of the Jordan River, you are not to engage in war against the Ammonites and you're not to engage in war against the Moabites because I have promised that, that land to Lot. And his posterity. I'm not going to give you any part of that land. And the people of Israel respected the word of God. But the Amorites, sounds like the Ammonites, were a different story. The Amorites were given to the people of Israel as a, as a product of the judgment of God. The people of Israel were the instrument of God's judgment to inflict a judgment upon the Amorites. And if you may remember, back when God gave the covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15... You remember how he said your people, your offspring will be given a land flowing with milk and honey. But for four generations, that's 400 years, they'll be away and then they'll come back to the land. What was the reason God gave them? It's because the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullness. And much of, of scripture, and as we read through the history, the, the, that term Amorites sometimes is actually used synonymously with the Canaanites. The Amorites were always going to be given to the people of Israel. But the Ammonites and the Moabites, they're untouchable because God had made a promise. He made a promise that they belong, or the land belongs to the sons of Lot. So yes, the Amorite king, Sihon, was defeated. The Amorite king was defeated, Sihon. And his land on the eastern side of the Jordan River was dispossessed of the people of the Amorites. And they were given to the people of Israel. All the way from the Arnon to the Jabbok. All the way to the border of the Ammonites. But no further. That's true. Previously, Sihon dispossessed the land from the hands of the Moabites. But the Ammonites are in question right now. And they're saying it's our land. It was never their land. Israel fought against the Amorites. And God, the only true God, gave them the victory. And when God gives you the victory, that land is, is yours. You have claim to it. Wars of Iniquity 101. If your God gives you victory over an enemy... The land that the enemy possessed is now yours. Yahweh has given us that land, is what Jephthah is saying. Rightfully, he's given us. We fought the battles with the Amorites. Yahweh has given us that land. Now it belongs to us. Why don't you just be satisfied with the land that your false god, Chemosh, has given you? Do you see that little bit of a stab that he... I think he's... Pointing to the fact that your 
God is a weak God, and ours is a strong God. From there, Jephthah issues a word of warning. Balak, the Moabite, these are your brothers, remember, the Moabites and the Ammonites, brothers. The Amorites are not, the Amorites are not, but the Moabites and the Ammonites are brothers. Balak was the king of Moab. And he says that he did not in any way dare to fight against the people of Israel because he knew how powerful they were. He knew how numerous they were. He, they'd encamped and he was able to see and his heart was in dread because he had heard of what had taken place with the people of Israel against the powerful, formidable force of the Amorites and he was, oh, something needs to be done about these Israelites. He didn't take to battle to the people of Israel, but rather, if you remember, he enlisted the help of Balaam. You remember that story? Balaam, why don't you come and curse these people of Israel? Instead, in the end, Balaam blesses them. But Balaam, the Moabite, he didn't dare take the fight with the people of Israel. He knew if he would, he would lose. Their God is too strong. And Jephthah is saying now to the Ammonites, why don't you take a leaf from your brother's book? You're not better than your brother, Balak. Don't try to fight us. Don't be rash. He can give good advice to others, can't he? Don't be rash. And the final thing he says, I think he's almost appealing like as though he's a, a bit of a lawyer. Because Jephthah now appeals to what seems to be what we know and understand as statutes of limitation. You probably know what that is, and if you don't, it's, it's basically, there's a certain period that you can lodge a complaint, or there's a certain period of time that you can make you know, your, your disagreement with something, or a decision, or something along those lines, and then after that time has lapsed, it's no longer valid. It's too long. I'll give you this example. You sit down at a restaurant, and you order a meal. It's quite reasonable once the waiter serves you the meal. That within maybe three to five minutes, you can go, hey, waiter, uh, it's quite cold. And he'd be more than happy to take you back and give you a refund or give you a replacement meal. But good luck trying to get a refund three months later. Come back to the restaurant and say, you served me a meal for you. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to allow you to, to say or to, to give you the refund in that matter. There has to be a reasonable amount of time that, it, that has passed. And, and so what Jephthah is saying to the Amorite king is this. You've, we've been here 300 years. 300 years we've been here. And you and your people, you haven't said a word about wanting the land back. I think you're a bit too late, my friend. I'm sorry. We're no longer receiving complaints on the matter. The applications have closed. He's, I think, I think Jephthah is actually quite brilliant in his diplomacy. He's very intelligent. He's a mighty warrior, but he knows how to negotiate. He knows how to deal with the, the opposing armies who are quite angry at this point in time. But ultimately, ultimately Jephthah concludes with this. I've prepared a lot more to speak to you, and in fact, we haven't even gone to the main point. You probably realise that, because you've got itchy feet. You want to know about the vow. Let's not go there this afternoon. Let me just end on this one point. 
And then by God's grace, we'll go there next week when we bring Jephthah in his life and his, his period of, of, of being a judge over the people of Israel to a close as we bring chapter 12 to a close. But let me just end on this point. Verse 27. He's appealed to the points that he's made, and I think they're very good, strong points. But then he leaves it with this. Jephthah writes to him and he says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. I love that. He had a situation where you have a pagan nation in their army, a formidable force there in the boundaries within Israel. And you have the Israelites, and they know there's going to be a battle. And it's going to be fierce, and it's going to be brutal. And Jephthah knows the only thing standing between that this, this imminent battle is, is his, his attempts to diplomacy. And he roots his attempts in his understanding of the historical facts of the scripture itself. The king of the Ammonites has come and said, that's our land. We don't know. Maybe, maybe. It's his, his, his fathers and his forefathers had told him the historical events in that way to say, that was our land once upon a time. I don't know. But I know this much. That this Jephthah was rooting the whole argument and his appeal to these people based upon Scripture. Like an unmovable confidence in the Word of God. The Word of God has spoken to these historical facts. The Word of God has spoken to these historical facts. And I'm going to stand upon the Word of God. You're wrong, not us. We haven't sinned. You're sinning against us. And I love the fact that this is a pagan deity. He's acknowledged they worship Chemosh as their God. And they worship the Lord God, the only true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he says that it is our God. It is the Lord, L-O-R-D, meaning Yahweh, who is the judge. Not Chemosh, not any of the gods that you serve, but it's Yahweh. Because our God is the only true God. He's the God over the whole world. Whether it's the Ammonites or the Moabites or the Israelites, he is the God over the whole world. And he will judge between us. They're terrifying words. You have two parties here. Both think they're right. Both cannot be right. Both are convinced Both are prepared to go to battle, go to war over what they think is true and correct. And yet, they cannot both be right. That's a terrifying fact. Because what one thinks is, what if I'm on the wrong side? Convinced, sincere, all these things. Beloved, truth is truth is truth. No matter what you think or what I think, truth is truth. And the God of Israel does indeed judge between them and gives them a formidable defeat over the people of the Ammonites. And he subdues them before Israel. And here you have Jephthah saying that it is the Lord God in chapter 12 that gives us the victory. More on that next week.
It is God. It is Yahweh who is the judge of all the earth. He will judge between us because he has all seeing eyes. He knows truth. I appeal to history through a document that is authoritative, is what Jephthah is saying. You appeal to history through whatever sources you have, but there is only one truth, and that truth is held in the heart of Yahweh, the only true God, the God of Israel. I love that. Was Jephthah's faith misapplied? No way. No way. Because the Lord God had revealed that truth to his heart. And the king of the Ammonites finds out the hard way that even though he may think in his mind what is right, the fact is the truth belongs to the Lord. And beloved brothers and sisters, the same truth that Jephthah appealed to is in your hands right now. That's the same truth that he appealed to. The word of God. And you have forces all over that will say, no, no, there's another truth. And these days you hear it. This is my truth. That's your truth. That's rubbish. There is one truth. There is truth only in the word of God, only in the incarnate word of God who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's also the one who has the authority to execute all judgment when it's all said and done. It matters not what man thinks. It matters only what God thinks, what he knows and what he has revealed in his word. Let's end with that and let's come to our word of prayer.